0: Welcome to another episode of Campus Chats, where we interview successful Princeton alums and individuals on campus, and really dive into what makes them tick and how they got to where they are today. Today on our show, we have Yasmin Afsar, who is a Princeton Electrical Engineering graduate student. And in this episode, we cover how to find a good advisor and maintain that relationship, a little bit about Yasmin's research in thin film electronics, and the typical day of a grad student and effective problem-solving techniques. Hope you enjoy. All right, hey Yasmin, thanks for joining today. So the first question I wanted to start off with, how did you decide to pursue graduate studies?
1: Sure. Uh, It was actually, for me, a super last-minute decision. Um, I was a senior in undergrad and pretty much like, yeah, I'm going to get a job and see what that's like, and then Mm -hmm. use that to evaluate whether I want to go back to grad school. Um, I had one professor who I uh, took a really great class from and I thought I would just talk to him about grad school in general um, One day and I think that that conversation pretty much put me from like yeah I'll apply in like a couple of years to like okay. I'm applying I'm applying now. I'm applying this year I'm gonna take the GRE in like two weeks or something um, So it was actually very much motivated by this one person. Uh, I think I, I guess I'd always had a sense that I wanted to go I was a physics major in undergrad mm-hmm. and especially at that time Which is like a long time ago. It's like you couldn't really get a job just as a physics undergrad. You pretty much Mm -hmm. had to go to grad school. um, Compared to if you're a bachelor's in engineering, you can pretty much get a job even then. Mm -hmm. Um, So I knew that I needed to get some kind of advanced degree in order to really have job prospects. And I knew that research was like pretty fun and allowed a lot of flexibility in terms of what you are able to do and uh, the kind of lifestyle that you can have. And gives you also a lot of, um, I guess, just yeah freedom and flexibility and that's not something that you'll really ever get in a job to mm-hmm. some extent unless you're maybe self-employed uh so that was very appealing so i wanted to i knew i wanted to go it was this one conversation with this one very inspirational professor who he was like oh if you want to go you should just go now or you're going to lose your motivation and you're mm-hmm. probably not going to want to apply so that was uh yeah that was the catalyst but i did always kind of want to go for a long time um yeah
0: Got it. So it sounds like you had a lot of motivations to go already, and then he mm-hmm. sort of just pushed you over the edge by saying you should just do it now.
1: Yeah, 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 more or less, um, which is which is fair. I would say that, like, I don't know if, if that's something that you're considering or something. like makes a lot of sense to apply now, and you could always defer. Um, mm-hmm. But at least if you get all of your stuff done while you're still a student and used to the kind of um, environment here and you have the resources here and all the professors available here, it definitely helps a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before your physics and then you transitioned to now your electrical yeah. engineering graduate studies. How did you decide to make that uh, particular jump?
1: Yeah, it wasn't like such a drastic switch to be mm-hmm. honest. I, uh, a lot of the research that I had been involved in in like undergrad and before was very much related to solid-state devices and um, and thin-film electronics. So, that, so that's, that was stuff that was in physics labs, but always kind of like a tangential project for those areas. So I figured all right, this stuff is pretty neat. So if I'm gonna work mm-hmm. in this area, I may as well move to a field where it's much more of a central focus compared mm-hmm. to like always this tangent afterthought kind of thing. I took one class um, with a very inspiring professor in my senior year after I'd finished most of my requirements. It was just like my very first uh, semiconductor devices class, and and it was just really fun. I don't know. It was. It was. I mean, so much of it obviously has to do with teaching and everything, but it was. It was very fun. It was a nice way to like integrate a lot of things I'd learned in my physics classes into. This way that seemed very useful and applicable and like very apparent in everyday life. I
0: guess. Mm-hmm. Got it. And f- I've heard for graduate students finding the research advisor is really important. Uh, what went into your considerations when you're looking for a potential research advisor?
1: Oh, it's so important. I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it's really they're not just your advisor. Like you really want someone who's who's a mentor who thinks of you as not just like a little robot in the lab, but mm-hmm. who thinks about you as a person with your needs and. The fact that you're gonna be there for a temporary amount of time and then you're gonna go somewhere else and have a career and they need to think about the big picture and your best interest and everything so many advisors don't do that they, they really think okay how can I hang on to the student for as long as possible and keep them productive in the lab and make sure they don't want to graduate but no you don't want to be with someone like that so the way that you can really I mean you just have to talk exhaustively I guess with as many different professors as you can in your department and other departments um, to try and get a sense of what uh, your dynamic would be like if you were to join that group and then i'll obviously talk to like every grad student and get all the dirt <laughs> that you can as well um but i think yeah ultimately i decided on uh, also choosing someone who is more senior um i thought that was pretty helpful because i wanted to think about what my i, I was not sure about academia or or industry for after mm-hmm. graduation um, now i'm pretty much firmly leaning towards industry but it's really useful to have in some sense um a more established advisor because they'll have much more Broad network of connections um, Mm -hmm. both in industry and academia so that was something that was important to me there are a lot of advantages for working for a younger professor too but Mm -hmm. that was something that was a priority for me so
0: got it and after choosing the advisor to work with how do you go about maintaining like a good relationship with them over time
1: yeah that's a good question Um, because obviously like how they view you really matters I think like so at least in my group I don't know if I've done the best job I could probably do better but we always have group meetings every week I think like that's a really important time to show like how you've been working and how you've been thinking and take advantage of their of your advisor's presence and stuff like that so there were times where i like didn't present where it would have been good if i had i think it's always good if you always present you always put together an organized clear presentation of of what you've been doing such that it really frames the problems that you've been dealing with such that it shows that you're a clear communicator and a good and like a sound thinker Um, i think those little things really build up to make a good impression uh, and establish and maintain a good relationship with an advisor over time. plus, like, yeah, yeah, I think just it, so if you have the opportunity to have to like do some kind of weekly uh, conversation with your advisor, which not everyone has. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, being really prepared for that is probably the best the best way.
0: Uh, I'm Kind of curious, what area does your research focus on currently?
1: Sure. So my <clears throat> my research is pretty broadly, uh, distributed over the field of large area electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, so large area electronics means everything from like pretty much every display that you have in any consumer product. So your cell phone, your laptop, your iPad, uh, whatever. Many I guess many modern cars have displays embedded in them and so forth. So that's like the very clear commercial branch of my mm-hmm. field. Um, my group does stuff that's a little bit more wacky. So we try and build large flexible sensing sheets Um, that are just like that. They're basically very thin, and they're very capable of gathering all sorts of information from the environment. And the idea is that they can be laminated to surfaces, so uh, say underneath a bridge to detect strain and early signs that something might be failing or getting overly fatigued, um, to a wall where you could have a collaborative workspace where uh, people can use gestures to control uh, computers and have different... uh, speech commands by many different users recognized by the same overall system. Um, Mm -hmm. The system that I just built recently was a pressure sensing system. Um, So this is actually a harder one to explain uh, because pressure sensing is an interesting thing for many reasons, but I'd say that the focus of my project was more uh, in these large area system architectures, you have two domains. You have uh, large area electronics, which consists of sensors and also simple uh, thin film circuits, which are compatible with the low processing temperatures the plastic substrates require. Um, And then you also have a very high functioning silicon CMOS IC domain. Um, And we use silicon CMOS for very energy intensive and computation heavy Mm -hmm. processes. So we, we try and build hybrid systems that use both of these technologies. And it turns out that what is really challenging in many cases is the interfacing between these two. Um, and if you want to have systems that have a very, very large number of sensors, so they can really collect a lot of information uh, that we can hopefully do really interesting signal processing mm-hmm. on later, um, you're, you end up being somewhat limited in how, uh, how many sensors you can access if you want to feed this all back into one CMOS IC. So the system architecture that I built most recently was actually it was, a, it was demonstrated in a pressure sensing system, but it was much more about um, creating a system architecture for very scalable interfacing between these two uh, regions in larger electronics. Mm
0: -hmm. And you mentioned your group does some more wacky things. So what's one of the more wackier things you've gotten to work on?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Let's see. Well, so our group built a a thin film radio, which is pretty cool. So it's like a radio on plastic. Uh, And it's kind of funny. So the actual radio circuitry is this very, very small, I don't know, it's like the size of maybe like an inch by an inch um, piece of plastic with with Transistors and all the circuits are just right on that little piece of plastic, but then the antennae that you need are like enormous. Which doesn't really matter because if you want to just embed it into a wall, it's not such a huge deal. But there's this picture that I love of my uh, 74-year-old Austrian advisor, who's like six foot four, standing up and he's holding this like huge antenna, and it's like basically the size of him, and it just. I don't know. It's kind of hilarious. <laughs> I wonder why people at conferences take us seriously when we have such like absurd-looking systems. But but it works. It's pretty cool. They uh, it transfers information over like uh, 30 feet, so very functional to like transfer information from like one side of a room to another or something like that. Mm-hmm.
0: So it sounds like you get to do some really cool stuff in film film electronics. Uh, do you see any exciting developments in this field as time progresses?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that one thing that um, I was always very skeptical about, but seems like it's actually come a huge way in the last few years, is uh, like carbon nanotube circuits. Um, I always thought that, I don't know, there were some fundamental issues with reliability and reproducibility with carbon nanotube materials. Um, and that's one of the reasons that my group hasn't really gone into that area. But uh, yeah, just like a couple weeks ago, I saw the kind of progress that they've made and people who have made. Uh, Basically, like systems that use millions and millions of carbon nanotube transistors uh, in different circuit configurations to do really cool stuff, and that that just that number, millions, is is totally overwhelming to me. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with carbon nanotubes, but they have uh, extremely high electron abilities, and they're also there's a lot of talk about integrating them directly with uh, silicon. CMOS as well for additional functionality and so forth. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a complex topic, all of itself. <laughs> but I think that's a really cool area that mm-hmm. um, will probably be getting more interesting as the future comes.
0: Got it. And for your day-to-day work, what's like a typical day like? I know it probably differs a lot, but yeah. if you could sort of describe that.
1: Well, so now that I'm like a very senior grad student, I'd say that it's for a long time it's been more like a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. grab my coffee in the morning and get to work and uh, some days I'll be um, working in the clean room where I'm actually uh, fabricating transistors and other devices, um, depositing these thin film layers and etching them and patterning them and so forth. Um, But other days I'll be in the lab just like setting up measurements or programming instruments, Mm -hmm. um, designing PCBs. So I'd I'd say there's a lot of variability um, but pretty much... It's 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 a much more regular schedule than probably some grad students keep. I know some mm-hmm. people are like completely nocturnal, but like I I can't do that. So I try to keep to a relatively regular schedule, make some room for like cooking dinner and exercise and um try to get a little bit of work done after after dinner. But uh yeah, it's it varies. I guess it also depends a lot on whether there's like a conference deadline impending. Mm-hmm. When that happens it's like everything <laughs> <laughs> You're just working around the clock. But but when when that's not the case, I think you could have a pretty normal life and like and have weekends and mm-hmm. stuff, so.
0: Nice. And when you start doing uh, research, what are some important like problem-solving techniques you've developed over time?
1: I'd say, I don't know if this is necessarily the best technique, but I think when you're first uh, assigned to a project or coming up with a project with an advisor, it's really good to, especially it's so easy to do now with Google Scholar and everything, um, to do a really thorough search of what people are already doing in the field to try and get an idea of trajectory. Uh, because you want to make sure that what you're doing is going to be relevant to a broader community. Um, I think that's a really, really hard thing to predict, but uh, the only way that you can have any idea is by doing you know, a very, very broad search and really trying to understand the problems of your field, um, fundamental problems of your field. Uh, but as far as problem-solving techniques, there's always kind of like this simple thing where, okay, like something's not working, which happens all the time, um, and just trying to isolate one by one different like process variations that could have caused that problem Um, it's a very time-consuming process but yeah that's that's one way of doing things I think for me what works the best for many years I worked on my projects like completely by myself and that was so basically I didn't have a lot of people to talk over problems with Mm -hmm. I think that one thing that helps a lot is um, when you have many students who are all kind of invested in the same project Mm -hmm. it's somehow just like Scales exponentially. I feel like the number of people you have who are invested, the more people you can bounce ideas off of. Mm-hmm. I find it very helpful for getting much quicker solutions uh, to problems than if you're just plotting through, um, going through all the possibilities on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, just yeah, sometimes having like some fresh outside perspective is really helpful to get uh, to get me into the right kind of problem solving mode. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I would say that's that's what I do.
0: And, and as a grad student, what are some of the more like challenging moments?
1: Oh, so many. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that now. Yeah, now that the end is in sight, I'm like much more optimistic about grad school. But there are many times where you're in the middle of grad school, in particular when you're you've already invested some years and the end is far, and uh, nothing is working in the lab, and you're completely alone. That it can be very, very dark and very difficult. Uh, definitely, um, I. Yeah, I would say I, I worked for a long time to make this one particular process in the clean room like very robust, and it was working really well. I was get like going ahead to move on to um, building circuits out of different transistors that I had uh, developed these processes for, and then all of a sudden, the process just like stopped working, mm-hmm. and it was so mysterious. I had no idea what had happened. It took a very long time for me to ultimately like get the process back to where it was and, and and I'm still to this day not even sure that we really understand what caused the, the variation. Um but yeah, I think they when you're working on something by yourself and some act of nature or God happens and completely messes up everything and just like kind of messes up with your trajectory, it's it's it can be very difficult. Um I, I think other people have probably had much more difficult experiences in grad school than I have. Like many people have issues with their advisors and uh, conflicts with their advisors, unreasonable advisors, uh, people who are very, very far away from home. There's so many international students from China and Turkey and India, and mm-hmm. they don't get to go home sometimes for like years at a time. Um, so I can only imagine how trying that must be. But yeah, for me, there have been tough moments, but yeah, probably nothing in comparison to some of the other kids in the department.
0: Mm-hmm. And it sounds like finishing up grad school, you learn a lot about perseverance, problem solving. Yeah. What are some of the like, <laughs> skills you think you've gained throughout this whole yeah experience so
1: those are definitely you're right. those are definitely some I think um because you're working on stuff for which there's usually like never a textbook uh, which can be its own challenge, I think it is nice in that you kind of have some confidence that you can with enough time to prepare, kind of do anything um because you have had the experience to go and forge this new ter- this very very small new territory in your very very narrow fields but Uh, But yeah, I think that the techniques that you use to make that progress, you can uh, apply to anything. So, um, I think the main issue is convincing employers that you can do that, (laughs) but I think it's totally true. I I, I think that you do learn to be a very independent uh, worker and independent researcher, and that requires often figuring out things that maybe no one really knows, um, figuring out things that might be completely unrelated to your prior expertise with very, very little supervision and guidance. Mm uh, yeah, it's challenging, but I think that's a, that's probably one of the most useful skills you could never learn. So that's that's a good thing. <laughs> Got
0: it. And if you could give yourself a piece of advice back when you were starting off grad school, what do you think that'd be?
1: Hmm. I think one thing that I, I do tell younger grad students now—I feel like such a <laughs> grandma—I um, I think I tell them that um, most things are kind of negotiable with your advisor and with your project and. I think it kind of feels like when you start in this group, you're such a small person and your advisor knows so much and the senior grad students know so much that you don't really want to rock the boat at all. And I think it's important to know that like sometimes, I don't know, advisors are busy people. It's not like they've always thought out the best possible thing for you and they have many students Mm -hmm. and stuff. So it's really good to take really serious stock of your project and the direction it's going. And if you don't like the direction it's going, I feel like you can tell your advisor, if you have a good advisor, Mm -hmm. back to the importance of choosing a good advisor. I think you can tell them, and I think you can negotiate with them to move it in a direction that you're more interested in learning about. Um, If you, for example, see like, if you're interested in going to industry or academia, and you see that a particular area is, is calling for a certain set of skills, and you want to develop those skills, you can pitch to your advisor, like moving the project in a direction that will work best for you for your overall career trajectory. And I see that in a lot of cases, people are willing to accommodate that, mm-hmm. um, as long as there's still like interesting research to be done. So I feel like, yeah, treating your relationship with your advisor more as like a back and forth, where you have a little more agency over your own destiny and your own project, I think is a kind of like a brave and bold thing to do. But yeah, definitely important, and I, I wish that I had done that earlier.
0: Got it. And we're wrapping up. So the last question we ask is sort of, what was one of your favorite memories at Princeton? So being a grad student here, what do you think is a, cool. a memory that stands out to you?
1: I mean, Princeton is really nice. I feel like the grad students here, although we're kind of like isolated into our own little universe, I think that we are pretty tight knit, maybe because we live together for a year in like essentially a dorm. Um, but it's really nice having that community. Favorite memory. <laughs> I don't know that it was a positive memory, but, um, Hurricane Sandy mm-hmm. came through in my second year of grad school and basically just knocked out everything. There's no power, many grad students didn't have power for two weeks, so they oh. had like no power, no hot water for like two weeks. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think persevering through like this <laughs> kind of a like very unusual state for people who are usually like, I don't know, in this high-tech, uh, whatever, super cushy kind of lifestyle, um, Like all of us coming to EQUAD like, all day, even on the weekends during that hurricane was kind of hilarious just because mm-hmm. we are all hopeless and without any access to internet or, or heating, and mm-hmm. it was a very nice bonding experience <laughs> for all of us. But but no, I mean, I think the day-to-day things are the things that I'll miss a lot, like, the fact that Princeton's a really nice, like, small community mm-hmm. with, like, I don't know, awesome little coffee shops and great bookstores and um, really nice people and families and getting coffee every day with my friends and lunch and uh, watching movies together. I'll, I'll definitely miss that kind of community because I think that once you leave grad school or, or undergrad for many people, you don't have that uh, close-knit circle of friends where you're all kind of available to do things at the same mm-hmm. time people's priorities change and stuff. So I think I'll just very much miss that sense of community more than a particular yeah.
0: Alright, thanks a bunch for joining us <laughs> and really appreciate you uh, taking the time to share. No problem. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Join us next time for another exciting episode. If you have any requests for people you want to hear about, just leave it in the comments below. Have a good one.